This is C-SPAN's Afterwards podcast. This week, investigative reporter Alexandra Robbins discusses her book, The Teachers, A Year Inside America's Most Vulnerable, Important Profession. She provides a behind-the-scenes look at the issues teachers are facing in the classroom today. She's interviewed by Education Week staff writer Madeline Will. Alexandra, I'm so excited to be here with you today. I could not put down the teachers. It was like reading a novel, um, even though it's it's uh, very deeply reported. Um, so just to give some background, before your past books have really dived into the lives of high school students, fraternities, sororities, and nurses, what made you write about teachers? Um, I, I've always been drawn to education. I think I keep coming back to the education beat. It's just It's really where my heart is. Um, for teachers, it just seemed like the teaching profession was getting more and more difficult. Things were changing. I didn't know why. Uh, in 2019, that was the first time that uh, demand outstripped supply for U.S. teachers by more than 100,000 people. So I was wondering, where are they going and why is this happening? So I ended up wanting to write a book that amplifies teachers' voices in sort of, a, you know, as you say, a readable novel-like way so it's not... You know, so it's not dry and it's something that people can get engaged with um, because it's so important that we listen to teachers. It's so important that we hear what they're saying because I think they're the key to fixing our education system. And you're also a substitute teacher yourself, um, which is clear in the book. It's very personally and professionally meaningful to you. Can you tell us about why you started doing that, how you got into it? Yeah, subbing was completely separate from the book. I was surprised to see an article in in a local paper, and this was pre-pandemic. I was surprised to see an article saying that there was a substitute teacher shortage and that districts were hurting. And so I went to a nearby district and I said, is this really true? And I talked to administrators and teacher friends and uh, assignment secretaries, and they're all like, yes. So I said, okay, well, I could sign up. I could do it, you know, once every couple weeks. So I thought I would just do it once every couple weeks, but I found it um, so rewarding to work with the students and to be around the staff. Just teachers are just, they're just the best people that I ended up subbing a lot more frequently than I expected to. Um, Last year, I ended up subbing more than 150 days out of 180. So it's kind of where my heart is right now. (laughs) Wow. And how did that inform your experience reporting the book? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, it was great. I do want to make clear that the schools where I subbed and the people, the, the students and the teachers who were with me are not in the in the narratives or the essays in the book. That's not, I was not undercover in the school. <laughs> um, but it, it really gave me a great sense of what teachers were telling me. Teachers were talking about, this is what happens at parent-teacher conferences. This is what a lockdown drill is like. This is back to school night. And then I found myself, um, last year I ended up long-term subbing and I didn't even I I never expected to to do that but uh, a couple days before August open house in a school where I had subbed short term many times a school was allotted a new third grade class and there was no teacher and so they asked if I'd cover the class until they could find a teacher and I ended up subbing from August all the way to winter break so that's when I got to experience okay now I'm on the teacher end of the parent teacher conferences I had to do a an active shooter lockdown drill um, I was doing back to school night presentations and it really gave me a better sense of what teachers were going through at the same time I was trying to write a book while also subbing um, which was very difficult <laughs> and very time consuming and um, 
did not have a lot of sleep, but I'm glad I went through that because uh, 70% of teachers have had to work a second or more jobs just to be able to continue to afford to be a teacher. Mm. And so for me to go through that and to see how difficult that was and how there just were not enough hours in the day, I felt was a really good experience for me to understand as I wrote the book. And I'm sure talking to teachers, too, while you're substituting probably informed your teaching practices as well. Yeah. So I followed three teachers for a year for the book. I followed uh, Miguel, a special ed teacher out west, Rebecca, an East Coast elementary school teacher, and Penny, a middle school math teacher. So I was talking to them every day, involved with them at all times. And so, yeah, I would ask them advice if there was a student I wanted to um, do better at connecting with or if there was a lesson I wasn't sure about. I had these experts right there who I was talking to anyway. So um, with Miguel, for example, techniques he used with his special ed student, I started using with special ed students who were in um, my classes when I short-term subbed, for example. Or Rebecca has this thing where she sings in class all the time. That's how she keeps kids entertained and engaged. And so I started teaching kids. I started making up silly raps just to get them to remember a math strategy or a reading comprehension strategy. And it worked. It, they re- they would beg for the raps uh, because we would do little dance-offs and stuff. And when I also when I subbed, it also gave me a better sense of what to ask the teachers I was following, whether it was Miguel, Penny and Rebecca or whether it was the hundreds of other teachers I interviewed for the essays in the book. It just gave me a, a great foundation um, to to understand where they were coming from and to know what to what to ask them about, which which I hadn't. I mean, it's great that these two things in my life dovetailed right. at the same time because that wasn't something that was planned. Um, so you follow these three teachers. Um, could you tell us a little bit about your reporting process? Were you sitting in their classrooms? Because it felt like you were in the book. <laughs> oh, thank you. Um, no, I wasn't for several reasons. One, with the pandemic, it was harder to get into school buildings. Um, schools were, you know, you have to show ID. You have to um, be approved to get in. And so that's not something that I wanted their administrators or parents or community or students to know about because these teachers Um, they really bared all in their personal lives and their professional lives, and they wanted to be completely 100% candid. Mm -hmm. And for them to do that, they couldn't be outed. So their schools couldn't know they were participating in this book. Um, In many cases, their families didn't know. The parents of their students didn't know. Um, Their names are changed in the book. Certain identifying details are changed. I don't specify exactly where they live and, and things like that. Um, so it was really more of uh, being in touch with them every day. Wow. Right. Um, when you, I mean, you must have known, you knew th- through your uh, substitute teaching experience some of the daily challenges of teaching, but what surprised you about some of the workplace issues teachers are dealing with? Yeah, there's so much more than, than I'd expected. There's so much more going on than the public really knows about. I think one of the things that surprised me was the the outrageous things that parents think they can say to educators that they wouldn't say to anybody else. Just the just the blunt rage that they direct toward teachers. It's It was mind-boggling to me. Um, that was surprising to me. I think some of the things that schools tend to cover up 
was surprising to me. Like a brief example, uh, Penny had uh, her school had mold in the、mm. classrooms, and teachers were getting sick because of it, including Penny. And she went to the principal, and the principal, who in that particular school was not supportive, I will say that Miguel and Rebecca did have supportive administrators.、Um, the principal's reaction was to paint over the mold,、mm. which didn't solve anything. People were get, still getting sick. The school still wasn't a, a safe in, environment, and that just seems to be something that. Um, some school districts think is okay just to, you know, cover up bandaid approach and then proceed as as they were going. Yeah, the mold example was really striking, and I, I know we we hear other teachers talk about not having air conditioning when it's hot or or heat when it's winter. I mean, just that the school buildings themselves didn't seem like comfortable workplaces to say of nothing else. Yeah, there was、uh, in September.、Uh, Rebecca's classroom, I think the heat index was over 100 degrees, and she was describing students like draped over their desks with heat fatigue, and they couldn't get anything done.、Um, you know, right this week, as as we're as we're talking, it's not, it's going to be 90 degrees this week, and、uh, school systems, HVAC systems, haven't turned over to air conditioning. This is also testing season, so students are going to be taking these supposedly important high stakes standardized tests at a Time when they cannot possibly be comfortable in their classroom. You write、um, the public stigmatizes the teaching profession, yet also expects teachers to solve all problems and blames them when they can't. Can you talk a little bit about that cycle and how that plays out? Yeah, I, well, I think we learned during the pandemic, and I want to say that I don't focus on the pandemic because the pandemic didn't cause the problems we see in education. It just sort of laid them bare、mm. for everyone to see.、Uh, I think people realized then, okay, so we're depending on schools and therefore teachers for childcare. Um, for food, for food insecure communities,、um, we're depending on them for a whole lot of things that go way beyond academics. We're depending on them for、um, things you'd normally depend on a social worker for,、uh, for mental health.、Uh, there's so many things that are now placed on schools, which makes teachers the safety net for society, and that's a problem for so many reasons.、Um, not the least because teachers aren't paid to handle that, and they're not trained to handle many of these things. And I'll give a quick. This is a bit of a downer example, but it's an example of how teachers are sort of bearing the responsibility of society's failures. Between the 2012 Sandy Hook massacre and the 2022 Rob School massacre, the only substantive change in society was that districts trained teachers to hide their students and barricade the doors. That's it. That's all that's changed. And so again, we see. Okay, so society's fail- failures are placed on teachers' shoulders. And at the same time, we're getting this, as you mentioned, this rage from parents.、Um, and I think you referred in, in the book as a student as consumer attitude,、um, where teachers were telling you things. And this is a, a real quote from the book: "Like I pay your salary, and I can get you fired." Why do you think our society has this attitude towards teachers? Because other societies don't. No, and I think our society didn't used to. When I was in school, it wasn't that way. I think there have been a lot of changes in education that have led to this sort of. Um, blaming teacher narrative in, in education.、Uh, I think it probably started in earnest with No Child Left Behind and high stakes testing, and that led to an atmosphere in which teachers were judged by how their students did on a particular test on a particular day, which is so wrong. A kid can come to school with a stomach ache and have a bad test score.、Um, a kid can. Um, not be well fed at home, or not have involved parents, or be homeless, or experience some sort of trauma, and 
for all these reasons having nothing to do with the teacher, they could not have a great test score. And then in the early 2000s, teachers were then blamed for students' poor test scores and sometimes their jobs or their um, salary or bonuses could depend on these factors that were out of control. They could be the greatest teacher in the world, but if you have a student who just uh, experienced a trauma at home and, and um, you know, tanked the test, there's, there's nothing you can do about that. It sort of created a climate of fear and competition in schools, and I think parents got hyped up because the government was also focusing on tests as a measure of school success. So that started it. I think social media is also another part of it because it, it, it increases the polarization of people and people feed onto each other's um, negativity and you know as, as you know with like Yelp reviews people are more likely to get on social media to rage against something than they are to uh, to praise something so that was another um, problem then during the pandemic that created a whole new issue where parents wanted their kids in the physical buildings at school, and they blamed the teachers for that not being able to happen, which was also misplaced, also wrong. And then you have certain uh, politicians sort of pouncing on that and using this whole idea of parents' rights as a way to galvanize parents uh, in order to um, achieve their political goals, and that created this us versus them, parents versus teacher attitude. So all of these things kind of were building, and now I think we're at this tipping point where it's 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 it's. I mean, it's been too much all along, but I think, in my opinion, that's the trajectory that's led to today. Right. So now we're seeing this this parent right movement um, where. These le- this legislation is being introduced across the country that would restrict classroom discussions on topics like race, racism, LGBTQ issues. From your reporting, what kind of toll is that taking on teachers or how are they experiencing this? Oh, it's, it's so hard because teachers are the only professionals who are trained and certified to um, deliver and develop child uh, appropriate, age appropriate content um, to our nation's children in schools. Nobody else, just Mm -hmm. teachers. And now they're being told that they can't teach certain things or mention certain things because of uh, an individual's political views, Um, and that is hard. It's also hard because teachers just wanna do right by kids. Teachers are these compassionate, selfless, nurturing people who just wanna do right by the kids. And if there's a child who belongs to the LGBTQ community and teachers aren't allowed to talk about it, and let's include guidance counselors, too, because guidance counselors are included under this umbrella, too. If you're seeing a child suffering because they're uh, LGBTQ and they're being discriminated against, maybe there are problems at home because of it, and you're a trusted adult whom the student comes to, and then your school district is saying you can't do anything about it, I mean, that's heartbreaking. Yeah, yeah. It's um, when you think about um, how parents portray teachers or how society portrays teachers. There was a moment in time where um, teachers were called heroes, especially at the start of the pandemic. But you write in your book that that's kind of a problematic label. Um, why is that? Well, it goes back to what we were talking about before in terms of teachers being society's safety net. Teachers will do anything for kids. Um, teachers, they will donate kidneys. They will adopt students who are in the foster system. They, will, um, they, they do all of these things, but they shouldn't have to. 
and also, I mean, society should be taking care of people like that. Um, teachers are the ones who should be focusing on um, teaching. However, there's also this idea now that if a teacher doesn't martyr herself, then she's not a good teacher. And that's why it's not right to call them heroes, because one, they shouldn't have to be. And two, let's just talk about teachers being good teachers because of their teaching, not because they have to um, slip food into kids' backpacks when the kids are out at recess just to make sure that the kids won't go home hungry, which is something that a lot of teachers do. Yeah, I mean, time and again, your your book is capturing teachers doing more with less, like fewer resources, fewer support. Um, can you share some examples of, of what that looked like in the classroom? Oh, gosh. You mean you mean like the, the food in the backpacks? Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, um, Miguel went out of his way for a homeless student in many ways. He felt that because the student didn't have a male role model and the um, child's mother was pretty apathetic and not involved with education and pretty hard on the child, you know, Miguel would, would step in and sort of secretly buy the child something at uh, the book fair so he would have something to and just try and be a, a constant presence in his life um, to make sure that the kid felt like he had some sort of anchor. And, I, you know, I don't want to do any plot spoilers, but he turned this kid's life around mm-hmm. completely. Um, this is a child who the year before would bolt from the classroom every few days because he was angry about something and by the end of his year with Miguel he was like a a model student Um, I talked to teachers who would give their students their personal cell phones even after the student graduated just so they could be there um, for the student you know teachers are um, 94% of teachers buy their own classroom supplies and that's an average of about $500 a teacher many spend more penny who I followed spent $2,000 one year that's just for classroom supplies. Beyond that, sometimes they're paying for kids' glasses or furniture or field trips or things like that. They're just, they will do anything to, um, to help their students. They call them my kids. That struck me, too. They always say, they're my kids. Like, I'll do anything for my kids. Um, their job does not stop uh, when the school bell rings at the end of the day, not just because they have more grading and prepping and lesson planning to do, but because they're always thinking about their students. They're always thinking, how can I reach this student better? Um, this student seemed like uh, he was struggling today. What can I do? What um, Maybe I should reach out. What can I do to make him emotionally better? Because teachers, it's like they adopt all their students, and, and they... they they just want to do right by them and make their lives better, um, even broader than just at school. And even in terms of that prepping and planning, you, mes- you mentioned um, the teachers in your book are working such long hours to get it all done. And I think um, that kind of goes into the what I think you call a myth it is teachers get summer off. That's a funny joke. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's a, a teacher's. I, I, yeah, why is that not, not the case necessarily? Well, uh, well so. Teachers aren't paid for their work um, during the summer. They're only paid for the school year. Um, but then when they are supposedly off during the summer, they have professional development. They have to take continuing education classes to keep up their certification so they can keep being teachers. Um, school districts change the curricula all the time, which means that teachers have to spend the summer redoing their lesson plans and learning the new curricula. And there, there's just so much that they're doing over the summer. Uh, they come back to school earlier than um, than everybody else. They stay later uh, in the school year than students do. It's just they, they don't have summers off. That's that's not true. <laughs> 
So you, you started this by talking about how demand um, for teachers is, is outpacing supply. Um, and we, teacher shortages have been in the news recently. Districts are saying they're having a hard time finding enough teachers to staff their vacancies, especially for subjects like special education. Um, but in your book, you call a teacher shortage a misleading term. Why is that? Yeah, there's not a teacher shortage. There are plenty of people out there who would be amazing, who are qualified, who are willing educators, who either have been, are, or who are willing to be in the classroom and would do a terrific job of educating our children. There are plenty of people out there. However, there's a shortage of jobs that adequately treat, compensate, and respect people such that they would want to be teachers in the first place. So that's not a teacher shortage. That's a job shortage. If you want to improve the job, the teachers will come back. And along those lines, you know, we, we know that, that's, that from studies that teachers are, are more stressed than many other professionals. Um, and maybe to no surprise after this conversation, but... Um, you also posed the question, what if the premise of teacher burnout is a myth? Uh, what do you mean by that? So that goes back to what we were talking before about um, the uh, blame the teacher educational narrative. Teacher burnout, experts say, is because of uh, unmanageable workloads. It's caused by high-stakes testing or time pressure or having not enough resources to do your job. These are the things that studies show cause teacher burnout. But instead of specifically fixing those issues, schools don't do that. They just say, oh, okay, so you're burnt out, so you need to learn how to relax, you need to do a better job of self-care, and I'm air-quoting that because it's such a popular phrase and teachers are so sick of hearing it, um, because school systems, instead of trying to fix the problem, are just, again, putting everything on teachers' shoulders and saying, well, you need to cope with this or else you're burnt out, you know, you're... Uh, you're not doing a good job of preventing yourself from being burnt out. So I say that uh, instead of saying teachers have the highest levels of burnout, which is something that studies say, we should instead be saying, no, school systems are the employer's worst at providing employees with the resources they need to do their jobs. And what would help? What would some of those resources look like? Oh, let's start with more support staff. We need more paraeducators. We need more counselors. We need more school psychologists and social workers and uh, a full-time nurse in every single school. Uh, if you look at special ed, that's where we're seeing a lot of vacancies. It's because they don't have enough support. And when certain um, severely to moderately disabled students um, may have impulse control issues or they may have communication challenges and sometimes they lash out physically. It's not something that they mean to do. They're, it's not out of malice. It's just it's just what happens. And if you have one teacher, uh, this happened with Miguel, in a class with many students who have those challenges, if you're turning to talk to one and the other one body slams you from behind, it's not that the student is a bad person is that the district didn't provide enough aids in the classroom to be able to monitor all of these students. Uh, and that gets into, you know, special ed teachers are often told that the violence is just part of the job and that teachers are just supposed to accept it. And that's wrong. Work, work should not hurt. Um, districts need to stop putting uh, the onus on teachers to um, handle these completely impossible situations and instead provide what teachers need. So the first thing I would say is support staff. Okay. And 
more time, I would imagine, too, just to get everything that needs to be done done. Yeah, we're talking about teachers have maybe 50 minutes of planning time a day. And if you're an elementary school teacher and your class does not have you know, art, library, PE,、uh, or music that day, then you may get no planning time that day. So teachers are expected to do all the grading and prepping and planning when? Not during their paid work day. They end up doing it after work. At home, unpaid. And that's happening to pretty much everyone. You know, high school and middle school teachers, they may have 180 students easily.、Um, I spoke to a teacher in Utah who had 263 students. That's an AP English teacher. So, can you imagine in one 50 minute period being expected to、um, grade, correct, and refine the writing of 263 essays and then to have to do that every time you give them a new assignment? It, it's impossible. It is an impossible job. Mentioned school librarians, and there's an essay in your book that talks about、uh, librarians and their importance and, and their, maybe their role that is not what you might expect when you think about the word school librarian. Can you talk a little bit about that、um, important educator? There are all these stereotypes about librarians that,、um, well, I'm not going to go into them because I don't want to perpetuate them.、Um, librarians are actually some of the most cutting edge teachers in the school. First of all, librarians are teachers. They teach students and they teach teachers. They are technology experts. They know、um, all the resources and literature for every grade in their school.、Uh, they are collaborative professionals. They are the ones who teach. The staff, whenever there's a new online platform that the school has to learn,、um, they really do a lot more than people think.、Uh, they also are the ones who often create this sort of、um, safe, accepting environment because every child should be able to see themselves in a book. And many school librarians understand that and want to connect the child with the book that will. You know, inspire them or spark their love of learning or validate them or make them feel seen. But there, not every school has a, a librarian, and that's the position you talk a little bit about is just、um, is not as well funded as it could be. Is that right? Yeah. And so, so here's the thing. So, librarians, it's been proven if a school has a full time librarian, then the students master academic standards better. Uh, they have higher test scores and they're more likely to graduate. Librarians have been shown to affect the achievement gap. They help close the achievement gap just having a full time librarian in school. But something like, I think it's something like a third of districts in our、uh, country don't have librarians. I think four, 40% don't have full time librarians. More than half of charter schools don't even have libraries. So here's this. This amazing resource that every school should have because it can help fix all of these things that we hear in the media all the time about the problems with the education system, but people don't realize that it's because of the librarians and that we need to get that position back into schools. You know, we have districts,、uh, Michigan, I think. I think they got rid of 92% of their full time librarians. Spokane, Washington eliminated the position entirely.、Uh, people. I guess didn't really understand what it is librarians do and how important they are. They're seen as extras instead of necessities. They are complete necessities,、mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. Yeah, a lot of what you're talking about, I mean, it's, it's teacher working conditions, but it's also student learning conditions. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, can, how, can, how can students thrive in, in, this, in these kind of、um, environments? Yeah, exactly. It, I'm glad you said that because 
everything we talk about, everything teachers' unions are asking for, everything teachers are asking for, it's not just to better the environment for the teachers. Teachers' working conditions, as you say, are children's learning conditions. If teachers are asking for you know, a better HVAC system, that's as important for the kids to be able to sit comfortably and learn as it is for the teachers to have uh, which should be the proper working environment. If we're talking about um, salary, for example, it's been shown, studies show, that students have significantly higher math and English standardized test scores in districts that pay teachers a higher base salary. And it just it just makes total sense. If a teacher doesn't have to work a second job after school, she's going to have more time to devote to thinking about, okay, how do I differentiate this lesson so that my gifted students and my struggling students and my students in the middle all get the most they can out of it? Everything we talk about in terms of teachers' working conditions, everything we improve there will improve schools for students too. You, you mentioned, and I think there's one example of a, a teacher selling their blood plasma in, in your book. Um, we're seeing this conversation now about teacher salaries, and, and um, there's legislation um, across the country and federally trying to raise teacher salaries. Um, is that enough to fix the challenges um, of the profession? It's not enough, but it's a good start. It's, it's, it's something, it's, it's a good beginning to the conversation. I mean, after that, we have to talk about, okay, well, how do we keep those salaries up there? And also, you know, the legislation right now is saying base salary of 60000 um, That's great, but 60000 means different things in different places in the country. Uh, there is a, a school district in Oregon that just announced that they're raising their base salary for all teachers from $38,000 to $60,000. And this was said in a Zoom call. It was a superintendent's idea. Um, and uh, teachers were crying because in that small rural district, that meant everything. There was a story about... Uh, there was a, a pair of teachers in the district who were married, and the difference in both of their salaries suddenly meant they could afford childcare. And if you have that situation, then the teacher doesn't have to quit her job because childcare um, costs outweigh what she's earning as a teacher. It means it's a big deal. Um, so yes, it's a good first step, but there are so many other things that, that we need to do. I was one of the teachers that you shadowed, um, Penny, was dealing with workplace bullying. And I was really surprised to read some of the statistics you shared about how prevalent this is among educators. Um, talk a little bit about that. Why is that? Yeah, um, according to the, the expert in this country on, um, on workplace bullying in schools, 70 to 80 percent of educators have witnessed a principal bullying teachers. Um, there's this sort of power dynamic where a principal has so much control over teachers, you know, what grade the teacher teaches, um, what duties he or she might have, um, the size of their class. There's, there's so much that a principal can do to make or break a teacher. And the teachers feel like they can't speak out. They're worried about retaliation. Um, in some cases, districts cover for principals. I'm talking to a group of teachers who are dealing with that right now. The, the district is covering for the principal and not removing him from the school while they investigate him, even though he is creating a toxic working environment uh, for the teachers. So... It can be really hard. Uh, there's also the idea that um, there's something called oppressive group theory, which says that if a group is made to feel inferior and they can't, um, they can't climb out of it and they can't do anything to 
um, to talk to or to retaliate against the their supervisors, we saw this in, in nursing as well, then they may turn on each other because of the stress and the frustration and because they have no other outlet. And so sometimes we see that with teachers as well. What can be done to help that? Well, it comes down to the administrators. Administrators can can foster a collaborative, warm, accepting environment. So, you know, it's it's hard that it can all come down to the principal of a school, but school systems really need to do a better job of making sure that principals are held accountable and that there is a system in place for teachers to uh, get help for um, workplace bullying without um, without fear of breach of confidentiality, without worrying about losing their jobs or being retaliated against by administrators for speaking out, because right now there's there's nothing really in place for teachers. Yeah, um, it, all of these challenges that we're talking about. So many of the teachers in your book say they're staying and teaching. Um, why why are they staying? What's keeping them there? Because what it comes down to is the kids. You know, I heard over and over again, like, I stay for the kids. If I leave, it's because of the adults. Mm. Um, I mean, I saw this in subbing, too. The act of teaching, it is so joyous and so rewarding. And making these connections with with students and with staff, it's just... It's, it's like the best job in the world. So teachers are stuck right now because they love teaching. They just don't love being a teacher, right? It's the role that's the problem, not the work. Um, so they stay because of the joy, because they see the aha moments uh, where a student suddenly grasps a math concept or makes a connection between you know, something in social studies and something in reading or a science experiment works. They, see, they stay because uh, students come back to them after they've graduated and tell them how much they mean to them or they get notes from students from you know a couple years ago I remember you and I remember this and how's you know such and such that was in the classroom Um, it really means something to teachers Um, they stay because um, they remember that time when the bell rang and the kids were like oh because they didn't want the lesson to end Mm -hmm. it's like these little moments can keep you going for weeks and even though there are more tough moments than joyous moments sometimes those joyous moments can be so powerful that they motivate you to keep going because it's really, teaching can just be a big warm fuzzy. <laughs> yeah, you know, we, we look at, I, I'm thinking of some recent research that looked at how um, undergraduate college students were, they asked them if they're interested in teaching and they were talking about all the negative messages they're getting um, from the media, from their friends and family, like why would you go into teaching? It's so hard, uh, you're not gonna get paid enough. Um, yeah, I mean, what do you think that, how can society turn that around? How can it, we make this an attractive career again? Yeah, we need to flip the messaging. I mean, that was one of the reasons I, I wrote the book. We need to realize, oh, teachers are floundering here, and now we need to step yep, step up and, and speak out for them. Um, there are so many more people who support educators than don't, who support teachers, who support public education. I think the, the negativity is coming from like a small fringe that are just very loud and very coordinated and very aggressive. Um, so it is time for the rest of us to speak out and be educator allies and spread the positivity and talk about how meaningful teachers are, not just to the teachers themselves, but also um, op-eds, testimony to school boards, um, petitions to get teachers what they need. You know, it, It's time um, or we're going to lose them. 
And one of the the teaching profession is overwhelmingly um, it's white and female, yeah. um, and districts are trying to attract more diverse candidates into the profession. Um, how how do you think that? Could you talk a little bit about that? What you learned about teacher diversity in your reporting? It's so important. It's so important. If a black student has just one black teacher. Um, by the time they hit third grade, they're more likely to do better and stay in school. If they have two black teachers by the time they go to college, they're more likely to go to college. It's it's so important for students to see themselves in the classroom. And uh, right now, fewer than 10% of teachers are black. Fewer than 10% of teachers are Hispanic. And we ha- we have to get uh, we have to get more people of color into the classrooms. It's, it's so, so important. Um, I like the idea that some school districts are having where there's like a pipeline and they focus on the community and let's get members of the community to go from students to graduate, um, get t- training as teachers, and then come on back to the community. I think that's a great idea. Yeah, I was talking to one researcher who said something like teaching is the only job where students are seeing it every day in front of them. Um, so I would imagine that would be um, a, a good <laughs> a good pool of, of potential teachers to choose yeah. from. Yeah. And teaching is also a predominantly female profession, too. Um, how did how does this gender play into any of any of this? <laughs> These workplace challenges? Uh, sure. I'm, so uh, approximately three-quarters of teachers are um, women, and approximately three-quarters of superintendents are men. Um, it's always been the case that it's been a female-dominated workforce and a male-dominated um, supervisory system. Uh it started back in the 1800s that teachers were blamed um, by the men who ran uh, the education system for the failures of the system. They would just say, oh, well, they're women. So, And you know, all the stereotypes of women that were prevalent back then, it was easy for them to just punt the blame for everything onto the teachers. And that kind of hasn't yet gone away. Mm. Yeah, it's... Um I mean, so now it's May, and that's or it's about to be May, and that's Teacher Appreciation Month. Um, what does true teacher appreciation look like? Um, year round, first of <laughs> all, not just the second week of May. <laughs> um, I think people don't realize that even the littlest gestures to teachers throughout the year um, make a difference. Um, if, if you don't have to, you know, get your teacher some sort of lavish gift, although if you can manage it, like. Give them everything. They deserve it. Um, Really, what teachers keep from year to year to year to year are the detailed, heartfelt notes that say specifically what that teacher meant to you, what that teacher meant to your child. You know, if you're a graduate, you know, I remember you because and you made a difference in my life because teachers actually keep those notes in their work bags. So when they're having a bad day, they pull them out of their work bags and they read them to feel better. That's how important these notes are. They don't throw them out. So if there's nothing else that you can possibly think of to do for Teacher Appreciation Week, just tell the teachers how meaningful they've been to your family. It's a nice, um, nice way of the form of communication where, where in a lot of your book, it's the parent communication can be very terse and, and constant. Um, and that's another stressor teachers are dealing with. Um, I, and it was just noticeable how many texts teachers were receiving yeah. <laughs> um, day in and day out. I mean, what kind of relationship does that create between the parents and teachers? There's, there's sort of this sense of instant gratification where parents shoot off an email and then 
and then they wait for the response. And teachers, you have to understand, they either maybe don't have time to check their email at 11 p.m. at night when you sent that angry missive, or um, they know better than to do that because then they'll think about it all night and they won't get any sleep, and that won't help them in the classroom. Um, again, if they have 50 minutes of planning time and 263 students, they may not have time to even get to your email or find your email in the next few days and but parents some parents um, seem to forget that and seem to not be aware that no your teacher might not be able to respond right away to to whatever it is and you should really think of reaching out to someone else if it's urgent or um, if your students in middle school or high school have your students speak to the teacher um, themselves Uh, They can advocate for themselves. That's a lot easier. Teachers would prefer that. I also like to tell parents to schedule send their emails so that um, if you're thinking of something at 10 p.m. at night, don't send it then. Schedule it to arrive during the school day. That's just common courtesy. And also by the time you wake up the next morning, maybe you'll want to take back something that you said in there. Um, So that's that's just to start with. yeah, I mean, I think you had a lot of list of tips for, for parents. Um, but in general, what do you hope non-educators are going to, to take away from this? I think they should um, better understand what teachers are going through, um, have some empathy, understand that if you support teachers, it's not enough just to say you like teachers. Now is the time when you need to stand up and lobby for what teachers need. It's not enough just to be like, you're great, you know, here's here's a bag of cookies, which is, which is nice, but that doesn't do anything for the teacher's working conditions. Um, I think also we all need to uh, trust teachers more and make an example of trusting teachers. Say in front of your your students, you know, say in front of your kids who are students, um, I trust your teacher. And if you model that kind of appreciation and and respect, that's going to improve the student's experience too. Um, And I think we we just, we really need to have teachers' backs right now. And, And I hope that people understand that from the book. It's a um, it's a tough political climate right now, and I think teachers are are um, it, it just and from what teachers I've talked to are just kind of taken aback to be in the center of these um, political political fights. Um, what are your what are your thoughts on just how the profession? Where is the profession headed right now? But if we don't change the way our society is is treating teachers oh that's a scary question (laughs) uh yeah we we're we're there we we're gonna lose teachers we're gonna lose even more teachers if we don't fix the problems now um if this political war keeps going on in the classroom more and more teachers are gonna leave and i think and i hope people are starting to see that oh, my kid's fourth period class never has a full-time teacher. There is a substitute or it's combined with another class. Or I think a lot more parents are starting to see the empty classrooms and realizing that um, it's time and that all these things that may seem like abstract educational concepts in the media are actually going to affect them personally uh, with more and more frequency. So I am actually hopeful that people are understanding now how dire the situation is and how we need to support teachers immediately. And you you plan to continue substitute teaching, is that right? Yeah, I'll be back <laughs> in the classroom next week, actually. <laughs> yeah, I can't stay away. And, I, you know, writing this book, I, for the first time in my career, I've, I'm going to stop writing books um, because this this is this is the most important issue 
I can think of, and uh, I'm, I'm not turning away from it. I want to continue to help by advocating for teachers on a broad level and help them in the classroom by stepping in as a sub so they can, they can have the time they need to, um, to get their doctor's appointments or take care of their sick kids or whatever they need to do so that they can be um, at their best in the classroom. It's, you know, it's something small that, that I can do to help, but it helps them. Yeah. I mean, what have teachers told you after, after reading this book or that even that you interviewed? Um, they're grateful. Yeah. Um, they feel validated that, you know, a teacher came up to me after a, a speech that I gave um, a few weeks ago to say that she always thought that um, she left the profession because she felt that something was wrong with her because she wasn't, you know, handling things right in the classroom. And reading this, she realized, no, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't her fault. It was the working conditions, it was the administrators, and the job was just impossible. So um, there's validation. Um, it's, it's nice to hear um, from, I, I've heard from a former teacher that they actually want to go back into the classroom mm-hmm. after reading the book because um, reading the vivid classroom scenes made, made her realize that um, she, she wanted to be back in it. Um, but I think, I think it's a lot of it's a lot of gratitude, but it's also, and I saw this in the reviews online, yes, authors read their reviews, don't be nasty. <laughs> um, uh, teachers want non-educators to read it. They want people in decision-making positions to understand what their lives are like. Um, they want people who are so quick to rage at teachers to read the book, which you know, they probably won't uh, because um, they're not supportive of teachers to begin with, but, but teachers hope they do. And the three teachers you shadowed in the book, um, they're just, they're, I, I want to know like where they are now, what happened to them. I don't want to give a spoil, you know, any spoilers away, but um, I mean, just what do you hope people learn from, from their, them, learn from those teachers and just their um, unique personalities and, and way they're handling their own classrooms? Yeah, Penny, Miguel, and Rebecca really gave people a gift. You, you can't understand what it's like to be a teacher or what's really going on in schools unless you are a teacher. And so what Penny, Miguel, and Rebecca did is they let us be a fly on the wall in their classrooms, in their day-to-day. We can see what they go through uh, with staff, with students, with administrators, with school boards, and we can see what their daily lives are like, what the joys are, what the challenges are. You can understand why it's so hard to be a teacher, but you can also understand uh, why they want to stay in the profession because there's so many good things um, that are are part of the profession. And so, you know, I hope that people fall in love with and root for Penny, Miguel, and Rebecca as much as I did. Yeah, and their students who were <laughs> were great characters as well. Um, yeah, I mean, tell you you talked a little about your third grade students that you read a lot. I mean, what have, what have they taught you? Oh, my students. So my third graders. Wow, nobody's ever asked me that before. I think if I were to encapsulate in a nutshell what my third graders taught me is that um, the most important thing in life are the relationships you have and the connections you make and what you teach each other in mutual mutual learning environments, um, which is another reason I'm going back to the classroom instead of writing another book. Um, it is so uh, fulfilling to work with students. It is so... Um, there was a, a teacher in Texas who I interviewed who um, he made maybe $30,000 a year. He, you know, sometimes his water was cut off. His cell phone service was cut off. He couldn't support his family. He worked two other jobs just to be able to afford being a teacher. And I said, why, 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 you know, you could make more money 
in another job and he said because teaching makes my soul happy and I feel that to the to the core teaching makes my soul happy too <laughs> well thank you so much for for being here it was really fascinating to hear inside the uh, the lives of teachers thank you and thank you for the work you do <laughs> thank you <laughs> Thanks for listening to this week's Afterwards podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, listen to C-SPAN's podcast about books. Learn about the latest nonfiction books and best-selling authors. In each episode, we report on bestsellers lists and book reviews from around the country. You'll also hear authors talking about their latest books and insider interviews with nonfiction book publishing industry experts. 